It's always good to be with you on the Lord's Day. Let's pray and ask him for help. Father, thank you so much for this time of worship that you've given us so far, for us to encourage each other by singing truths that are saturated with your truth. And we pray, Father, that likewise, that as this word is read and preached, that you would help us to rightly think and to change to be more like your son. Help us to worship you as you deserve, to see you as lovely as you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some say that the main thing that, that the church should be about is the Great Commission. What they say is, is, is the Great Commission is, is central. It is the most important responsibility that we have as Christians. And when we're talking about the Great Commission, we're talking about going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And I want to suggest to you today that as, as amazing a task as the Great Commission is, and as, as high a calling and a commission it is for us, and how as close as it is to the center, there is actually something that's even more central. So don't walk away saying Pastor Red said I didn't have to share the gospel. Okay, don't, don't mishear me. The Great Commission is, in fact, one of the most important tasks of the church. But there is something that's even more central. It is something from which the Great Commission flows. And it's love. It's love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he didn't say, go and make disciples. He didn't even say, worship my Father though we certainly should do both of those things. The answer that Jesus gave was in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the commandment to worship God is dependent on love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Great Commission is dependent on love him with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. But again, the central and most important calling and responsibility that we have as a church is love. It's a love for God that works itself out in love toward other people. You follow? Well, last week we focused on, on being holy in the midst of suffering. And this sermon, probably the rest of the sermons in 1 Peter, are kind of subsets of that, of being holy in the midst of suffering. One of the ways that we are to be holy, set apart, is our love. Perhaps the supreme way we're to be set apart is our love. Perhaps the verse in John 13, 35 came to mind when Jesus said this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. If we love each other, then people will look at us and they will see that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And then in contrast, if we don't love each other, then, then we don't look like followers of Christ. We look just like 
the rest of the world that has denied Christ. So, because one of the hardest things to do in the midst of suffering is be holy, and loving each other is an example of being holy, then it follows, ergo, that loving each other in the midst of suffering is also quite difficult. It is. And so just as we talked about the importance of being intentional and being holy, being purposeful and being holy, being motivated by God's grace on us to be holy, well, that transfers then. We need to be intentional about our love for each other. We need to be intentional about being spurred on by the right motivations to love each other. And that's what we're going to be looking at in God's word today. And the main idea that we want to walk away with is this. In light of the gospel, in light of the gospel, we ought to love one another earnestly. We ought to love one another earnestly. And we're going to break down this passage in this way. If you have a bulletin, you see it broken down. Number one, our motivation. Our motivation, we'll see that in verses 22 through 25. Our call, we'll go back to verse 22 for that. And then our behavior in chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll also spend some time in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's look at the book together, starting with number one, our motivation. Our motivation. Look at verse 22 with me. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're going to look at the, the first part of this verse right now in point number one, and we're going to come back to the rest of it once we get to point number two. But first, notice this interesting phrase that we have purified our souls. We have purified our souls. For all we who believe in Jesus Christ, the purification of our souls is in one sense already done. What exactly does that mean, that we have purified our souls, that we have purified our souls? Well, let's take a look at some other passages to get a, a fuller idea of, of what Peter means here. Jesus said to his disciples, which included Peter, in John 15.3, John 15.3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So why were the disciples clean? Were the disciples clean because they had lived a certain way, that they'd put off a certain amount of sin? No. It wasn't because they had rid themselves of impurities. The disciples were clean because of what Jesus had spoken to them and implied in that, in their belief in that. In Acts 15, again, there's, there's a meeting of the apostles in Acts 15. And they're, they're talking about, should Gentile converts be circumcised before they're allowed to join the church? That's, that's what they're discussing as apostles. And Peter, talking about the Gentiles, says in Acts 15, verse 9, And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So before the Gentiles believed in Jesus, their hearts needed cleansing. And by faith in Christ, God cleansed their hearts. Their hearts were made clean. Remember, Peter comes from a Jewish background, and so he knows very, very well this, the Old Testament idea of, of purity and impurity and, and cleanness and uncleanness. 
If you go back to Leviticus, you'll see that a lot of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament had to do with becoming ceremonially purified. Because something may have happened to you or you may have done something that wasn't even necessarily sin, but it made you ceremonially unclean. And before you could go into the presence of the Lord at the temple, you needed to be made ceremonially clean again. Some examples of these activities would be things like even a holy marital sexual intercourse or touching a corpse or touching certain animal carcasses, giving birth to a child, skin diseases. These are things that would make you ceremonially unclean. And there were, there were two ways, really, that you could become once again ceremonially clean to go back into the presence of God. Sacrifices and washing, washing, cleansing. And it really depended on what had caused the uncleanness. Now, if you're an outsider listening to this, you might think that that is very weird, this idea. But this whole idea of ceremonial uncleanness and cleanness and purification were designed to point to a greater reality. And that greater reality is, if you would be in the presence of God, you must be clean. And worse than being ceremonially unclean, every single one of us was spiritually unclean. We are sinners. We were defiled. We had sinned against the holy God. And we could not be in his presence in our state without being just utterly destroyed by his holiness because we were unclean. But the good news is, for you who believe in Jesus this morning, you are clean. This morning you are clean if you believe in Jesus. You have been purified. How have you been purified? How have you been made clean? The gospel. The gospel. Look at verse 22 again in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. By our obedience to the truth. Now this word truth sometimes talks about God's word in general. And that might work if we were talking about some sort of ongoing purification, the sanctification process that we go through. But again, remember, that purification is in the past tense. You have been purified, having purified your souls. Well, elsewhere, this word truth is referring very specifically and narrowly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here are some examples. In Galatians 2, 5, and 14, it uses the phrase, truth of the gospel. In Ephesians 1, 13, it calls the gospel of our salvation, quote, the word of truth. Similarly, Colossians 1, 5 calls it the word of the truth. So the truth in 1 Peter 1, 22, what we're arguing is, is that it's specifically talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then it creates a different interesting question. What does it mean to obey the gospel? What is obedience to the truth? Well, we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Peter wouldn't be alone here in talking about the gospel as something that actually needs to be obeyed. The gospel needs to be obeyed. Paul writes in 
2 Thessalonians 1.8 about Christ's inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He also says, Paul says in Romans 10.16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. So while, yes, certainly the gospel is something to be believed, it is also something that is to be obeyed. The gospel call, obedience to the one whom God has sent, is to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners and rose again. Obey that. And if you have obeyed that, you've been purified. All of that explanation of truth and obedience is just to say this. For all we who have obeyed the truth, for all we who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our souls have been purified. We were unclean. We were dirty. But we've been made clean. We've been purified. And it wasn't just our bodies, as in the Old Testament concept of purification. If you were ceremonially unclean because you had leprosy, now you're ceremonially clean. It's not just talking about bodies. Our souls have been purified. And what's the big deal with that? That means that when we die, our souls can go to be with the Lord who cleansed us. We're going to see later on in this sermon what exactly we were purified for. But for now, go to verse 23. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the reason that's given here in verse 23 for why we should love one another is that we have been born again. We've been born again. We say that all the time, but it, it almost loses the impact on us. It's kind of become uh, a common phrase in Christianese. People say, I'm a born-again believer. But what does that exactly mean? Could you answer that question, what it means, that you're born again? To be born again means that at one point you were spiritually dead, but now you are spiritually alive by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. To be born again means that God has removed the heart of stone from your flesh and has given you a heart of flesh so that you can walk in his statutes and you can keep his rules and obey them and that, and that we are God's people and he is our God. That's Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, paraphrased. To be born again means that in Christ, we're not just like upgraded versions of our old selves. We are new. We are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, if we were not born again, John 3.3 says that we would not be able to see the kingdom of God. So praise God that you believe in him are born again. Praise God that he has, as 1 Peter said in chapter 1, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. So we see a couple of pictures. We see, on one hand, that our dirty souls were made clean. And another picture that our dead souls were brought to life. We were born again, verse 23 says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, 
imperishable seed. Peter is extending this, uh, this illustration from reproduction by referring to seed. Whereas in our first birth, we were born of perishable seed and thus ourselves were subject to death because we were perishable. In the new birth, we are born of imperishable seed and thus we have eternal life. Thus we will be made imperishable. And this was accomplished, verse 23 says, through the living and abiding word of God. That gives us even more assurance that this new birth is, is everlasting. It's through the living and abiding word of God. The means that God uses through which we were born again was the word of God. You're a Christian because somebody preached the gospel to you. You're saved because somebody preached the gospel to you. And because of that, because of the fact that it is living and abiding, meaning that God's word is alive and it remains to this day, it's because of that that our new birth is everlasting. Why? Because the one who spoke that living and abiding word is alive. He remains. He is forever. The scriptures are unique in that while other writings are what people have said in the past, the Bible is what God is saying even today. And it's a word that is going to live on forever and ever. Verse 24 says this in 1 Peter 1. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Here Peter is he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And when it says that all flesh is like grass, it's talking about humanity. All humans are like grass, that is, in their first birth from perishable seed. All of man's glory is like the flower of grass. I'll be honest, I had to do some Googling for that. What is the flower of grass? Apparently, if you don't cut grass, it, all grass is flower. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because... Our, uh, uh, Elijah does such a good job with our lawn here at church that it never grows high enough to flower. But all grasses will eventually produce flowers. And that's the, that's the picture here. All humans are like grass. And anything that glorifies humans are like the flower of grass. However, verse 24, the grass withers. The flower falls. Every single human being in history except maybe Enoch and Elijah, have died. They have died. Even the greatest of men have died. They have withered away like grass. Everything glorious that they did will pass away. But on the contrary, Peter continues quoting Isaiah in verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word remains forever. Unlike man who, who withers away like grass. Peter equates the word to, as you see at the end of, of verse 25, he equates the word with the good news that was preached to us. That is the gospel. 
Gospel means good news. You could say gospel of Jesus Christ, good news of Jesus Christ interchangeably. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation, the truth that we obeyed that brought us salvation remains forever. It is, it is on the basis of that reality that God's word, the gospel, remains forever, that the seed of which we are born again is imperishable. It's because the gospel is imperishable that we also will be imperishable. That is why we will live forever with purified souls. That's the motivation that Peter provides for us. Our souls have been purified. They have been made clean by obedient faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just need to reiterate, because I feel like you're not excited enough about this, the reason why it's so important that your souls are purified is because you'd go to hell otherwise. You would not enjoy Jesus forever if your souls were not purified. So when we hear your souls have been purified, we should say, thank God that he has purified our souls. We have been born again. We've been given new life through God's living and abiding word. And since his promise will never pass away, since his words will never pass away, neither will we. Praise be to God. Now, why should that motivate us to love? Well, here are three reasons, three quick reasons why we should be motivated to love by this. The first is the God who caused us to be born again has commanded that we love. The God who has caused us to be born again has commanded that we love. John 13, 34, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In short, Christ commands his disciples to love one another. And it's like, that should be enough. That should be enough motivation for us. That the God who saved us tells us to love each other, period. But there's more than that. Praise God, there's even more than that. So first, he commands us. Second, our love is a response to his love. Our love is a response to his love. 1 John 4, 10 through 11 says this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You've heard Pastor Corey say this before a couple times. Very powerful. God did not start loving us after Jesus died for us. All right, let me say that, let me say that again for clarity. God didn't start loving you after Jesus died for you. No, he sent his son for you because he loved you. He loved us while we were unlovable. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning that he sent Jesus to be the sacrifice on our behalf that appeased the Father's wrath that we deserved. And so as John says in verse 19 of that chapter, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If God loved us the way that he did, the way that he has, how could we not love each other? It makes no sense. If God loved us while we were so unlovable, and I would argue that I am quite unlovable still, 
Why would we refuse to love others who are hard to love? So, it's because he commands it. Second, it's a response to his love. And third, it's because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus through whom we have been purified and born again. There is a sense in which that second motivation we just talked about is there is a sense that it's obligatory. It's obligatory. It's like, it's like the parable that Jesus gives where the master forgave his servant a debt of billions of dollars. And then that servant goes out and finds someone who owes him 20 bucks and he shakes him down for it. And it's meant to teach us how absurd that is that that servant would go after 20 bucks when he's just been forgiven a billion dollars. If God has forgiven us so much, we have an obligation to forgive other people's people. There is a sense in which we are debtors. Romans 8:12 says that. We are debtors. Not that we can actually repay the debt, brothers and sisters, but we should feel an obligation to walk by the Spirit instead of walking by the flesh in light of what God has done for us. So there is, there is a sense of obligation. But the Christian life is much more than that. It's much more than obligation. Living for Christ and thus loving others is not just about obligation. It's about being like the one we love most. It's about being like Jesus. There is no Christian in the world, not a true one anyway, who would say that he's got no desire to be like Jesus Christ. There is no true Christian that exists like that. Every true Christian wants to be like Jesus who saved them. And because God is love, and since Jesus is God, and the Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, then we will want to be loving like he is. If we are purified, if we are born again, then we should love each other. Amen? So with that motivation in mind, that's our motivation, the gospel. Let's look next at number two, our call. Our call. To see our call to love, rewind back to verse 22. Let's read the whole thing again, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So again, we have purified our souls by believing and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ by his grace. That's already done. That's all of God's grace on us. Now we see also that we were, we were purified for something. We are purified for something. Look at it. What were we purified for? We are purified for, verse 22, a sincere brotherly love. That's what we're purified for, a sincere brotherly love. Let's break those words down. Our love should be sincere. Literally, it should be ahypocrisis, unhypocritical, not hypocritical. It shouldn't be fake. It shouldn't have hidden agendas. It should be real love. It should be real love. Do you have a sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what you're called to. That's what you've been purified for in light of the gospel. Our love should be sincere. It should also be brotherly. It should be brotherly. The phrase brotherly love here in verse 22 is actually just one word in Greek, and it's one that you're familiar with. 
Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, they call it. It's the kind of love that brothers, human brothers, natural brothers, naturally have for each other. We understand what that looks like, or at least we understand what it should look like, right? We understand what love between brothers should look like. When you see human brothers, natural brothers, at odds with each other, hating each other, we find that to be sad and strange. That's not natural. Even the, the big brother says of his younger brother, no one beats up my little brother but me, right? He, he has that love and protection for his brother. That's not, it's just natural. It's being part of being image bearers of God. It is very hard for brothers to fall out with each other. Naturally, brothers love each other. Brothers look out for each other. It's difficult for them to fall apart, or at least it should be. You probably, if you have siblings, they're not even believers, you might have natural siblings who are very different from you, and they're very difficult, and yet you love them, and you would do almost anything for them, right? That's the kind of love that we should have for each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the kind of love we should have for each other. Does that rightly describe what your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ looks like? So our love should be sincere, it should be brotherly. And with that love, we are called to verse 22. Love one another earnestly. It's a great word translated earnestly. Our love for each other should be vehement, should be intense, should be strong. Theologian Matthew Poole notes this. The word seems to be a metaphor taken from a bow, which the more it is bent, with a greater force, it sends forth the arrow. So think about that, that tension of a bowstring pulled all the way back. Our love for each other should have that kind of strength, that kind of intensity. Is your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ earnest and strong? It should be. In light of the gospel, it should be. We're also to love one another, verse 22 says, from a pure heart, from a pure heart. Where does love come from? It comes from the heart. But remember, in the Bible's perspective, the heart isn't just the center of emotions. For that, you go to the bowels in Bible language, all right? The heart is not just the center of emotions. In their view, the heart is the center of everything. It's the center of everything. That's why we actually needed not new lungs or a new stomach or a new brain. We needed a new, what? Heart. And it wasn't just that our emotions needed fixing. Everything needed fixing. Everything needed replacing. And that's why Ezekiel 36, 26 says, God took out our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh. He changed our inner everything. And from our inner everything, we are to love one another. And it is to be pure. It's to be pure. Everything that comes out of us comes from our mouth. I'm sorry, our heart. Everything that comes out from us comes from our heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we could, we could apply that principle to everything that we do. If we have a pure heart, then our love for each other is also going to be pure. Holiness and love go hand in hand. 
You can't separate the two. If you're loving someone in an unholy way, you're not really loving them. If you're being holy but you're not being loving, you're not really being holy. We have been saved, purified, for a sincere brotherly love. We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's our calling. That is what we're called to do. And it's in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's motivated by the fact that we have been purified and born again. And it is made possible by the fact that we have been purified and born again. It's motivated by it and it's made possible by it. Because we are purified and born again, we are able to love one another fervently. Now what gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of our loving each other? Sin. Sin. Our own sin and the other person's sin. Our old selves against whom we are constantly at war is selfish. And our selfishness clashes against each other's selfishness. That's what's going on when we have conflict in church. My selfishness is going against your selfishness. That's what happens. As a part of this selfishness, another challenge that, that gets in the way is the false idea that our love can be conditional. It's a false idea that our love can be conditional. We think that someone should deserve our love. If we're going to love somebody, they need to deserve our love. But brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not how God has loved you. That is not how God has loved you. God loved us when we were completely unlovable. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we are to love each other the same way that God has loved us. That is the parameters that Jesus gives in John 13.34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You don't deserve Christ's love. And yet, believer in Jesus Christ, child of God, he loves you anyway. And therefore, you should love others, even though they don't deserve your love, even though they don't deserve it. Is there a brother or sister in Christ whom you have just written off because he or she is difficult to love? Well, that's not how Christ treats you, beloved. That's why we're expected to forgive each other, not three times, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. And we're to love each other earnestly from a pure heart. The bad news is, you cannot do that on your own. The good news is, you're not on your own. All right? You're not on your own. Christ did not just drop this incredibly high commandment to love each other as he loved us, and then just leave us to our own volition. Thanks be to God for that. No, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and he, the Holy Spirit who lives in you, bears Christ-like love in you. That list, that fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, is first and foremost what? Love. It's the first one on the list. God has purified you for a sincere brotherly love, and he is working out in you a sincere brotherly love, an earnest love from a pure heart. But it doesn't come automatically. 
you, as described in Romans 8, must walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. You must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, daily choose love instead of hate. You must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, look at your brothers and sisters in Christ intentionally the way that God sees them. And God sees your brothers and sisters in Christ in a way where he can justly command you to love them as he has loved you. That's what you are purified for. And that's what we're called to do in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? What does that love look like? That's, that's what we'll be spending the rest of this sermon on. Number three, our behavior. Our behavior. That love that comes from a pure heart works itself out in loving attitudes and in loving behavior. And that's why we, you may have found it strange that we would just steal verse one from chapter two and put it in this sermon, but that's why we put it here. Peter writes in chapter two, verse one of First Peter, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We are to, we're to put those attitudes, we're to put those behaviors away. The idea of putting away here is the, the taking off of old, worn out, useless, nasty garments to throw them away. Paul uses that same analogy in Ephesians 4.22 when he writes, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We are to get rid of the old self, the things of the old self. And here, Peter lists in particular malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What is malice? Malice is, is that which is inside of a person that would, that would have them do evil towards other people. So if you intentionally do evil towards someone, malice is, is that what was in you that motivated you to do that. It's the desire to do harm to somebody else. And we're not to have any of that. We naturally have that, but we're to take that and we're to put it away. We're also to put away all deceit. Put away all deceit. Literally, it's talking about using bait. The idea here is being treacherous towards each other. It's, it's, it's trying to deceive someone for your own gain. No offense to any car salesman in the room, but it's the first, it's the first thing that came to mind. Because when I, every experience that I've had there, if you are a car salesman, I pray that you're different. But every time I've bought a car, they say, there is no way I can go lower than that. No way. We'd be losing money on this deal. But if you stand your ground, they figure out how to, how to get you to your price. What happened? They said there was no way. They said they'd lose money on the deal, but somehow they figure it out. Sometimes a manager, in my experience, will come out. They're really just a fellow salesman. But with a manager coming out, it, it creates a, a false credibility. It adds a sense of pressure to the dynamic. And they do that to get the most money that they possibly can. We shouldn't be like that with each other. We shouldn't deceive each other. We shouldn't bait each other or betray each other. Brother Lenny, who's, who's a realtor, he used to be a member here, 
he's, he's, he's working uh, with uh, a Polish church plant now. But you could always trust that man to find you the best price on a house. I never questioned whether he was trying to swindle me or to, to get a higher price out of me. Why? Because I knew he loves me. That's the way that we should be with each other in our dealings. We put away all deceit. We also put away hypocrisy. We put away all fakeness with each other. We are to be genuine with each other. We're to be real. If you put on a front with someone, that's not love. That's actually more deceit. So we're supposed to be real with each other, not, hip, not hypocritical. We're also put away, to put away envy. Envy is that, that bitter feeling that you get when you want what someone else has. Jealousy and envy are similar, but they're different. Jealousy is when you are holding on to something that you do have, and envy is wanting what you don't have. All right? And that's a violation of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. We're also to put away all slander. Oh, boy. We're going to spend some time on this one. Slander. Slander is, is when you accuse someone maliciously for the purpose of damaging his or her reputation. You accuse someone maliciously for the purpose of damaging his or her reputation. Typically, it's a false accusation. But sometimes it could actually even be true. Like, for example, in Daniel 3.8, when accusations were being brought against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those accusations are true, but they're being brought maliciously, which is what makes them slander. And in fact, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates that word, a word that translates as slander. So all that to say is that slander can be true. Slander is not always lies. It's, it's accusing someone maliciously to defame them, to damage his or her reputation. And the reason why we're going to spend a little time on this is because of this list, slander is probably one of the one that I see most often in our church family. People talk about each other in negative ways behind each other's back all the time. And you can't even say, Pastor Ed, that's not true. You know it. You know it's true. I have heard of wives slandering their husbands to other women in this church. I have heard members complain to me about other members in the church. And they say stuff like, I'd say this if he were here. It don't matter. They're not here. He's not here to hear this, to defend himself. So don't talk about him. Unless you're going to speak positively about him, don't speak about him at all. Thumper 1-1 from Bambi. Sometimes we can even slander each other in the form of prayer requests. Let's pray for so-and-so because he's really been struggling with such-and-such, if you know what I mean. Sometimes we can even slander each other in the form of asking for counsel. I have really been struggling with so-and-so. Let me tell you, let me tell you all the such-and-such that he's been doing. What do you think I should do? Asking for prayer and asking for counsel does not give you license to besmirch the reputation of somebody else, even if what you're saying is true. There are only three reasons where it would be appropriate for you to speak negatively about somebody else behind their back. The first situation is if you have that person's permission. So an example could be a couple who's in counseling, and the counselor wants to speak with them individually, 
but there is a mutual agreement from everybody that they can be open, that they can just say anything that's on their mind about the other person, but there is permission. The second is if the person sins publicly. If, other, if, they, if they sin in front of everybody, and we see examples in Scripture where Paul calls out heretics by name, or he even calls out Peter for sliding back into false doctrine. Those are for the purpose of warning the church against somebody's errors. And the third situation is if that person won't repent of his sin after, after you've gone to that person one-on-one. Matthew 18 prescribes this, friends. If someone sins, you're to bring it to that person privately. And the hope is that you win your brother over, and then that's the end of that. You don't ever talk about it again. No one else needs to hear about it. You don't need to tell someone, hey, I told someone about their sin, and they repented. If he doesn't repent, and only if then, then you are to bring one, maybe two, witnesses to that next conversation. The Savior prescribes that before we involve anyone else, we go straight to that person. There is a principle in Matthew 18 that you keep it as small as possible. To love each other, it's to love each other. Is there sometimes wisdom in asking for someone's counsel before you approach someone like this? Sure. But you should do it in a way that you protect the other person's identity. For the most part, if you're asking for someone's help on how you should approach an issue, you don't need to mention them by name. There's usually no need for that. Otherwise, before you do due process, you end up slandering that brother. And we are to put that away. We're to put that away, brothers and sisters. And even if you're not convinced by this, just follow the golden rule. We don't like it when people speak about us behind our backs. We shouldn't do that to each other. Well, this list is what love does not look like, but also implied in what it doesn't look like is, is what it should look like. That We're supposed to actually put on the opposite of what we're putting away. Instead of malice, we should have benevolence towards each other. We should want what's best for each other. Instead of deceit, we should have honesty. Instead of hypocrisy, we should have genuineness. Instead of envy, we should have generosity. And instead of slandering each other, we should speak well of each other. Those are just examples of what love love looks like. And this verse is not a comprehensive description of love. It's just a representative description of love. And since we have some time, let's spend some time in the famous love passage to see even more about what love does and doesn't look like. Ready to hear people turning. Praise God. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And while you hear this read most often at weddings, and while it does apply to marriage, it applies to a much broader relationship. It's talking about the church primarily. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we read this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient. To be patient means to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. When somebody is impatient, he's hot-headed, right? 
As soon as someone sins against him, he blows up. Love isn't like that. Love is patient. Love suffers long with other people. That's how God is with us. Praise God. He didn't strike us down as soon as we deserved when we first sinned against him. Instead, from before all time, he set his affections on us and suffered long with our sin, and then he saved us. That's love. And it's the kind of love that we should have for each other. Love is kind. The idea here of kind is being mild-mannered and being benevolent with each other. We are to be kindly dispositioned toward each other, and we're to treat each other with kindness. Again, that's how God has treated us. He hasn't been harsh with us. He hasn't dealt with us unkindly. We are to treat each other the way that God has treated us. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't brag or show off. Love isn't arrogant. Love isn't egotistical and proud. If you're that way with someone, if you're being egotistical and proud, you're not being loving towards them. Love isn't rude. Love doesn't act improperly or in a way that's unbecoming a follower of Christ. Love does not insist on its own way. Love puts others' needs and others' preferences and other consciences above our own. Love is not irritable. If you're this kind of person, if, if your disposition towards someone is that you're easily irritated by them, you don't love them. Or at least you're not acting loving towards them. Love is not resentful. It doesn't keep a, a list of wrongs. If you love someone, you're going to forgive them and you're never going to hold that sin against them again because that's how God has treated us. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If you love someone, you're not going to be happy to see them fail. You're going to be happy when they're walking in the truth. You're going to be like the Apostle John when he writes in, in, in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to see, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There was nothing that brought him greater joy than to see that his disciples were walking in the truth. Love bears all things. This word that's translated bears is, is, is talking about covering. When you love, you end up covering a lot of sin in love. It is not possible for us to address every possible sin that we catch each other doing. That's all that we would ever, ever do. Sometimes we do need to address it. But other times, we simply just need to bear it. And what we're not talking about is sweeping it under the rug for later, for ammunition six months from now. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about covering it, bearing it, and letting it go. Love believes all things. It believes all things. The idea here is that, is that you give people the benefit of the doubt. You don't just assume the worst out of everybody that, that they're lying to you or that they have ill motives. That doesn't comply with love. Rather than doubt everything that someone says or doubt their motives, you presume honesty unless proven otherwise. And again, even if you're not convinced that that's what love believes all things means, that's how you want to be treated. You don't like it when people question everything you say and do. So don't do that to other people. Love hopes all things. We're hopeful for the best for each other in love. 
Love endures all things. It remains. It abides. You don't stop loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. If your love is temporary, it's not true love. So you see, love leads to love. Affection leads to action. If you love earnestly from a pure heart, then you're going to act with purity toward each other. And again, all of this is motivated by the gospel. It's all the gospel. God loved us with a pure heart. God wanted what was best for us. He spoke the truth to us. He revealed himself to us. He gave all to us. He will exalt us. He is patient with us. He is kind to us. He looked out for our best interest. He does not hold our sins against us. He makes us more like his son, and he gave his only son to die for us. And he will raise us up on that last day. God has so greatly loved us. How could we not love each other? So we've seen our motivation. Our motivation, our souls have been purified by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have been born with imperishable seed, born again. We've seen our call to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and then we looked at some examples of what our behavior should and shouldn't look like. What do we do now? Well, here are, here are five very quick points of application. First, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. You may be struggling with loving other people. You probably are. And the reality is that sinners are difficult to love. But remember the gospel. Remember God's love for you and the way that he showed it for you by Christ dying for you while you were a wretched sinner, worthy not of love, but of wrath. So remember the gospel. Secondly, remember that we're family. We're talking about believers in Jesus Christ. Remember that we're family. We're not fake family. I used to work at Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo family. Like, it, it's not fake like that. We are actually family. We are adopted into the same family by the same father, saved by the same brother, kept by the same spirit. Take that commitment that you have for your blood relatives and double it for your spiritual family with whom that you're going to be spending eternity in God's house. Thirdly, check your attitudes and your actions. Check your attitudes and your actions. It's really not enough to say that you love your brothers and sisters. You actually have to act like it. And neither is it enough to just do loving acts for people without affection. You are to have brotherly affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ and act accordingly. And you will have brotherly affection if you remember the gospel and you remember that we're family. Fourth, pray that God would help you love as you should. Pray that God would help you love as you should. He's the one who's going to work it out in you. And fifth, help each other with this. Help each other with this. Hebrews 10.24 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When my family was going through some uh, postpartum difficulties, one of the sisters in our church recruited, without being asked, other brothers and sisters in the church to come help us, extended our meal train, 
recruited women in the church to just sit with Megan so she could take care of other things when I was here and she had some things that she needed to take care of. That was, that was amazing. That was love. Do that for each other. If you hear of a need in the church, even if it's not someone that you're particularly close with, rally the troops to love in good works. And if someone is struggling to love someone else, remind them of the gospel. Speak truth and love to them. Love is our central task. That's what we've been remade for. Loving God with everything and loving our neighbors as ourselves, especially loving the family of God. It's not easy, especially in the midst of suffering. But it is holy. And it's pleasing to the holy, holy, holy God who loved us and loves us. Sermon in a sentence. In light of the gospel, we are to love one another earnestly. May the God who is love help us to do that. Let's pray.